The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, do you mind if I tell you one of the reasons that um, that worship set meant so much to me? I love the song that we just sang, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Um, the last song was written by our friend Sandra McCracken. It's just a beautiful reminder uh, of the Trinitarian God that we serve and the way that he moves towards us in the form of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before that, we sang uh, an old hymn uh, written by George Matheson. George Matheson, if you think you're old, George was born in 1840, so he's a lot older than anybody here. And, uh, and to have um, a, a hymn that the song and the poetry just still to me, it lifts off of the page or the screen and into my heart. And one of the reasons is uh, George's story. It's not, wasn't supposed to be in the sermon, but I felt inspired to share it with you. Do you mind giving me an extra three minutes for the sermon? And I'll, nobody seems enthusiastic. I'll skip it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay, I'll, you, want, you want to hear it? It's a really good story. George Matheson was born, I don't know if I mentioned, in like the 1840s. Um, he was studying to be a pastor, had a bright future ahead of him. Uh, an intellectual, very thoughtful, a gifted writer, and someone that he would think, you would think the, the world was going to be his oyster. He was engaged to the love of his life um, and preparing to get married. And in the weeks before his wedding was scheduled, um, he had noticed a, a deterioration in his eyesight. He was struggling to see. And he went to the doctor, and the doctors informed him that he had a degenerative disease and that within weeks or months, he would end up being completely and totally blind. Um, when he shared this news with the love of his life, his fiance, um, she decided that that wasn't the future that she had in store for her, and she broke off the engagement. And he was heartbroken. Um, he had a beloved sister uh, that cared for him for many years, uh, for more than a decade. Um, she was his companion, his friend, his caregiver. And then after 10 years of caring for her brother, George, she fell in love and was uh, ready to move out and go off and get married. And George literally had no sense of who would help care for him or provide for him. And he wrote that song, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go, um, on the eve of her wedding with this sense that he had experienced great heartbreak um, and loss and uh, maybe a feeling like some of you have felt of rejection. And in that rejection, he was reminding himself and I'm grateful he was reminding me um, that the great love of his life was his creator God that will not let us go, that promises never to leave us or forsake us. And uh, just singing that song for me is better than any sermon I could probably ever preach. And especially today, um, this is one of those days that it's a bit of a crapshoot for you. I hate to tell you that. Um, I just flew in from Israel yesterday. And uh, so I'm remarkably jet lagged and I am totally out of my typical process that I go through to prepare uh, to preach. I've had a hundred other things uh, on my mind. And the reality is my process to preach is different than the other pastors on our staff and most pastors that I know. Um, most of our pastors manuscript their sermons and they're thoughtfully, carefully, prayerfully have thought through every word they're going to say. I have never done that in my life. And so what I do is I study the text, I think about it, I've got all kinds of ideas, and then I say whatever comes out on Sunday. 
if you're jet lagged and not right totally clear, you could say some really crazy things. And what I tell people is that if you talk publicly as much as I talk, right, if you think all of us, um, when we say things, like the more you talk, the more stupid things you're also going to say, agreed? So if your percentage is like 1%, it's still 1%. For me, my, I just speak a lot more words. So my 1% or maybe my 5% like of crazy things that I say, they just go further. So I apologize in advance that I've had very little sleep, but I do have a lot of passion for the text and maybe a little bit extra in the tank because the, the passage I'm gonna teach you today is in John chapter six, and all of this narrative takes place at one of my favorite places on the planet that I just came back from on the Sea of Galilee. And so this week, I was with a group from Ecclesia. Uh, this is us at the place that Jesus made breakfast for Peter and the disciples after, after they were fishing, which is right next to the mountain of multiplication um, that I'm going to read to you about. And we went out on a boat and literally put our feet in the water uh, on this beautiful sea where um, the majority of Jesus' ministry took place. And the passage we're gonna look at today um, is an invitation to know Jesus in a new way. Um, we would love to think of the Bible. There are many in our culture that would love to think of the Bible as kind of a self-help uh, manual. Um, in fact, you could be a pretty effective TV preacher today if you just tried to turn the Bible into a self-help book. The reality is that's not what it is. Um, the, the Bible is, um, it, it's really, by the way, it's not a book, you realize that, right? The Bible's not a book, it's a, it's a library. It, it's, it's a collection of books, of many, many books, and all of those books are different. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus from his birth to his resurrection, different Gospels in different places, and they all do it in a different way. Paul has these letters that he writes to the church that are helpful and informative, but they're just kind of really casual letters, right? You have this apocalyptic literature in like Revelation and Daniel that's a really different kind of literature. You have poetry and hymns and the Psalms. You have history and you have even a poetic uh, telling of God creating all things in Genesis that's beautiful and calls us into the beginning of God's story and what it means to be his family. Um, can you tell I like the Bible? Um, I love the Bible. I can tell you the Bible will be really helpful for you, but the Bible's not a self-help book. It doesn't contain any formulas. There are times, I wish it did, that I could just go, I would like someone to tell me what to do. My world feels really complicated. I would love for it to be like a recipe book that if I could just take this, this, and this, that I'd be able to mix it together and end up with this. But you know what? Uh, it's more beautiful than that. Um, it doesn't have any formulas but it has an invitation into a relationship with a personal God. And the passage you're gonna look at today, there are a lot of people that would love to turn it into a formulaic thing. There were people in the story that wanted Jesus to do the thing that he does. And you're gonna hear Jesus in this text say, it's not about what I do, but it's about who I am and your relationship to me in knowing who I am. So um, let me, get to that actual text. Uh, Mar uh, an actual self-help author describes some of what we're gonna talk about today uh, from a different perspective. And, uh, and I think this text can be illuminating for you in this very same way if you encounter Jesus in it. This is part of what she says. She says, many people in Western culture are striving for success. 
She could have easily said, many people in West Houston <laughs> are striving for success. They want the great home. They want their business to work. They want all these outer things. Right? We live in a world, Ecclesia, focused on the outer things. She says they want all those outer things, but what we found in our research, she doesn't actually lead to the right answers in this book that she writes, but the research is spot on. She says, is that having these outer things does not necessarily guarantee what we really want, which is happiness. Right? Many of us can tell the stories of moving into the ultimate house, of getting the ultimate car, of getting the job you finally knew would be the job, only to find out the jobs, houses, and cars are just jobs, houses, and cars. She says, we go for the outer things thinking they're gonna bring us happiness, but it's backward. You need to go for the inner joy, the inner peace, the inner vision first, and then all of the outer things appear. I don't know that all the outer things will appear, by the way, but I do know that if the inner things are addressed and you know the one who made you and knows you, the outer things won't matter so much. And then when you get the outer things, you know what's gonna happen, and this is the text we're in today, you're gonna actually know what to do with them. If you get the outer things and you do the right thing with them, they really can be an opportunity to find a lot of beauty in the world. And that's part of the miraculous story we're gonna read today in John chapter six. This is what it tells us in the Bible. I'm gonna focus on that because no matter how jet lagged you are, you can't mess up if you just read the Bible. This is what John 6 tells us. Once this had transpired, we're going back to John 5, which you heard about a few weeks ago. Jesus made his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He loved to cross over, and, and which some of these days call the Sea of Tiberias. Now, one day I'd love to take all of you there. Um, it's one of those beautiful places on the planet. It's also much smaller than you would ever imagine. You get there and you go, this is supposed to be the Sea of Galilee? You're like, this is smaller than Lake Houston. <laughs> like Lake Conroe is definitely bigger. It's a lake. It was known as a sea. It was... Uh, it was the center of Jesus' world ministry. And I'll tell you, it's, it's beautiful and it's peaceful and it's as though he's still, to me, walking on the waters there. But it's, uh, but it's small. And as Jesus walked, he was, he was doing ministry in that area. He'd been healing people. People were catching on to something was happening with Jesus. A large crowd pursued him, hoping to see new signs and miracles. His healings of the sick and the lame were garnering great attention. Jesus went up a mountain, right? So what do you do if you got a big crowd following you and you don't want a big crowd to follow you? You hike, you go up a mountain. He goes up a mountain and it tells us, and found a place to sit and teach and his disciples gathered around. The celebration of the Passover, one of the principal Jewish feasts would take place soon, but when Jesus looked up, he could see an immense crowd coming towards him. Now, immense is not even a good enough word, right? This was a massive, massive crowd. Jesus approached Philip. So, so Jesus is clear. He's gonna be on the mountain. He's teaching the disciples, and now he finds he's not just teaching the disciples. He's teaching a lot of people, a massive amount of people. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, where is a place, isn't it interesting when Jesus asks you a question? 
Because you already know Jesus knows the answer to the question, right? You, but asking you the question is part of the exercise, right? That's part of what pastors get to do for you. We, like I'm, today I'm gonna poke you with a few good questions. And hopefully those questions are gonna rattle around in you in a way that's helpful. Jesus says to Philip, where's a place to buy bread so these people may eat? But verse six tells us Jesus knew what he was planning to do. He already knew the answer to the question, but he asked Philip nonetheless. He had something to teach and it started with a test. So he's testing Philip. Philip says this, he looks out on the crowd he says, I could work for more than a half of a year. So think of whatever you make. I'm sure it's amazing. Half of a salary for a year. He says, if I made that amount, half a year's salary, and it would still not be enough to have the money to buy enough bread to give each person a very small piece. He's like, I work half a year. So you can imagine, he's starting to answer our question for, if a small piece costs him a half a year, year salary, how much do you think it would cost him to feed everybody until they were full? A small piece of bread doesn't go very far, right? So this could literally, he could be thinking, I would work 20 years, I'd work 20 years and I'd have enough money to feed all these people. Now that's the kind, that gives you some financial context to what a big crowd this was. Andrew, the disciple who was Simon's Peter's, Peter's brother spoke up. Now this is what I want you to see here for a second. Um, Philip is probably a lot like you and I. I don't know about you, but I've got a tendency to have clear sight about the things that I'm lacking or missing. Anybody else have that problem that you go to your refrigerator, you open it up, and all you see are the things you wish you had in your refrigerator? The actual things you have in your refrigerator don't sound so good anymore, right? So I can look and go, that grocery store hummus, like I'm not gonna eat that, I just got back from Israel, like that hummus is really good, I'm not eating that, and then that cheese doesn't look so good anymore, and you just kinda look around and you're thinking, but if I wish I had sushi in there, that would be really great. If I, all the things that I don't have, some of you are irritated just cause I'm wearing my Baylor Bear shirt because your basketball team's not as good as my basketball team, right? <laughs> and all you can see is like, you, you should just appreciate you have a basketball team, like that's fine. They don't have to be good. My women's team and my men's team are better than your team. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm gonna preach on that today. Find a little momentum in that, right? So, but whatever it is, right, Philip was just like us. And we can look at our lives and go, well, if I just had the caring spouse that my friend has. Right? I mean, if, it's just, if I had the finances that my neighbor has. I mean, I wouldn't have to worry about anything if I had those kind of finances. If I just had the power and the prestige and the job that my uncle has, if, there's just, if I just had that, right? We have, we have, Jesus was testing Philip to see, do you have eyes to see what we have rather than what we don't have? And what we find in the story is that it's Peter's brother Andrew who doesn't know everything, but Andrew goes, well, I don't know. I don't know what we don't have, I know what we do have, this is what we have. I met a young boy in the crowd carrying five barley loaves and two fish. But that's practically useless 
and feeding a crowd this large. Andrew says, like, I I don't know what we have, but I don't don't know what we don't have, but I know what we do have. We got five barley loaves, we got two fish, Jesus. What's the plan, right? Now, can you imagine, can you imagine being the kid that got to make the seed investment in the feeding of 5,000? Like, I don't know if anybody here has ever invested in anything, but if you get like a million percent return, that's a pretty good return, right? (laughs) If you start with five loaves and two fish and you end up with, like that's that kind of multiplication, like that's a great, that's a great, don't you know it was downhill for that kid ever since then? He's like, man, I've I've hit like 500%, but I've never hit a million percent again, right? And I just got to tell you, this is part of what Jesus is still up to. That when we bring our best to Jesus, we bring our offerings. I got to tell you, Ecclesia, you, you may not see it every day, but I see regular everyday miracles that to me are like the feeding of the 5,000. Today we're investing in a group of churches in Venezuela. Pastor William Gomez is one of them. He's in Caracas. He pastors a church of about 400 people. And this is what William told me. This is William with some of the folks at his church. When I was with William in Cucuta, this is what William said to me. He said, when I go out in Caracas, when I go out in Caracas, um, the kids, he's a pastor just like me, right? He's like, one of the best things about being a pastor is that Kids love you. Kids want to see you. And kids would come up and talk to me. And, they'd, and you know what he said? Every kid would come up and say, Pastor William, I'm so excited to see you. And he said, every kid, next thing they would say is, are we having food on Sunday? Are we going to eat on Sunday? He said, because the kids are hungry. And they want to know. And he said, it's so hard to say. No, it's in five more Sundays. They were, they were doing food for uh, the church about every six Sundays. So Ecclesia, part of what we did is we gathered our resources for Williams Church and a bunch of other churches and we just said, we're gonna do a test. So just so you know, I'm gonna share some data with you when this is all done. We're gonna do a test to see what happens in churches where they feed people every week. We're just gonna, we're gonna do a test and see what happens. And so William was one of the pastors I asked, like how much money does it take for you to feed everybody in your church? And this is what you'll see. They've been doing this every Sunday and um, you know, looks like corn, I can't quite tell, corn and some meat there. Um, one of these next ones, he's, um, he's got a big thing of soup, right? That's what you do when you don't have much, you just, you make soup, right? And, uh, and William said, I can feed a kid for a dollar, right? I can feed a, a man, a woman for a dollar. Now, I don't know about you, Ecclesia, but I, I can't feed many people for a dollar, and what, what happens for us, I believe, is that gift multiplies. Because you know what happens? When a kid starts eating more and they get healthier and they fight off sickness and disease and their family's in better shape and their family stays in Venezuela rather than leaving for all the trouble that they can find in other places. And I gotta tell you, still today, I think we're seeing a multiplication like this kid with five barley loaves and two fish. And when we get together what we have and give it to Jesus, we go, Jesus, would you do something with it? And, and you know why a pastor in Caracas can feed people for a dollar? Because he goes out and hustles to get food from some butcher and he goes out and gets volunteers to make it and he finds a way in the power of the Holy Spirit to get it done. So let's keep reading in the story because what I want is for you and I to see ourselves like this kid. Like we get to bring an offering, what happens with it? And Jesus said, right, all this he knew was going to happen in advance because he's Jesus. He says, tell the people to sit down. 
And they all sat together on a large grassy area. And those counting the people reported approximately 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So you can imagine, we always call this the feeding of 5,000. We could probably accurately call it the feeding of 25,000, right? So we got women, we got children. A lot of people had a lot of kids. And I'm telling you, kids can eat, right? And you get on a remote area where you haven't eaten for a while, right? We gathered these Venezuelan pastors in the first, we didn't, it wasn't even a meal, right? It was our snack at the hotel, right? And I literally, I just watched people were hungry. They just, they piled food up like it was a mountain. It just kept going up. You think, I didn't think one plate could hold that much food, right? And people would just eat and eat and eat. And this is what it tells us, that Jesus picked up the bread, he gave thanks to God, he passed it to everyone. He repeated this ritual with the fish and men, women, and children all ate until their hearts were content. This became an all-you-can-eat bread and fish buffet, right? For 20, I don't know, 20,000 maybe people. And it, it just kept multiplying in Jesus' power and in his presence. And when people had all they could eat, he told the disciples to gather the leftovers Go and collect the leftovers so we're not wasteful. And they filled 12 baskets with fragments of five barley loaves. After witnessing this sign that Jesus did, the people stirred in conversation. And this, this man must be the prophet God was, said was coming into the world. And then the next passage tells us that they wanted to make him king in part because they, they wanted to keep eating. Right? They just thought if he's king and he can keep doing this with five barley loaves and two fish. And a lot of people started coming to Jesus for what Jesus could do. Now, I, I'm grateful that Jesus does a lot for us and for the world, but it's, we're gonna hear in this passage what Jesus was really about and what he was trying to say. So we've been looking at this, these passages as signs and the miracles are a sign telling us something about Jesus. And the great part in this passage in, in, in chapter six is that Jesus is actually gonna explain what the sign was about with bread. But before that, before he goes over to explain and do a teaching on bread, um, he uh, sent the disciples out in a boat. He didn't wanna be made king, so he pulled away from the crowd. He sent the disciples out in a boat. I'm gonna read you the passage from Matthew 14 because I like Matthew's telling of it because he talks about this interaction with Peter that I think is really beautiful that I can relate to. And what we know is that they went out of the boat and like is still the, the case today on the Sea of Galilee, storms can come up out of nowhere. And on what seems like just a pretty typical lake, boats capsize, people drown, things get really scary and the disciples were afraid. And what tells us in Matthew 14 is that Jesus then came out to them on the water and he said, be still, it is I, you have nothing to fear. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, then command me to meet you on the water. And Jesus said, yes, indeed, come. Now, there's a lot I love about this passage, um, but I'll tell you, I, I love the stories about Peter. <laughs> because I can relate to Peter a lot. I've got moments, Ecclesia, I don't know if you have moments. I got moments of faith. I have some moments that I have a lot of faith. I mean, for me, all of a sudden faith is coming out. It's like, um, it's pouring out of my skin. Like when you eat too much garlic, right? And you're just literally, anybody go to like Mai's, the Vietnamese place, they can make the garlic so soft, you just keep eating it. And then people around you are literally like, who's eating garlic in the last week? Like you just, it's just all over you. Like I have moments like that, that just faith is, it's the air I breathe. It's just natural. 
And you know what? The sad part for me is I can be boiling over with faith one moment and one problem can stop me in my tracks. And Peter has all this faith and he steps out successfully on the water. It says Peter stepped out of the boat onto the water, began walking towards Jesus. I don't know if it was three seconds or 10 seconds or six seconds of glory, but whatever it was, Peter, he was all faith for a little while. But when he remembered how strong the wind was, anybody have that moment? You're like, I'm crushing it. Jesus is with me. And then you're like, I can't pay my next bill. I feel alone and rejected. We say, I don't, it doesn't matter who you are. We all have moments we feel alone and rejected. We, we step into these places and then all of a sudden, the, the wind was strong. His courage caught in his throat and he began to sink. Now, I identify with Peter in this story but I'm grateful that all Peter has to do is pray this one simple prayer. This would be one to memorize right here. Peter just prays this, Master, save me. I don't know what it is or what you're facing, but there are moments that you're just like, I don't have any other words, but Master, save me. And immediately Jesus reached for Peter and he caught him. And then Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt and dance back and forth between following me and heeding, say it with me, heeding fear. Isn't that what gets you? It's what gets me. Then Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat, say it with me, into the boat together. And the wind became still. Now, I love the reality in this story that Peter had faith. <laughs> he got caught up in fear, he lost it. He still had enough sense to pray and that Jesus didn't sit back and go, well, Peter, let me see how you did. Let me, I'm going to grade you, right? Nobody, Jesus didn't grade Peter. What did he do? He answered his prayer and he pulled him into the boat. And I don't know about you, but I have some moments I can go like, I just need to be in the boat with Jesus, right? And and all of a sudden, like I'm ready to learn uh, from my failures and learn how to move forward in the next step. I don't, um, I don't know what that looks like for you. And this, there, for me, there's this fine line of being caught up in focusing on my failures and learning from them. Anybody else have that problem that you just go like, I could get caught up in thinking about, and I could relive, I could have done it this way and I should have done it this way. And, and instead of just, uh, probably a lot of people were as profoundly affected. I'm, I wasn't, I'm not a Lakers fan, but I found myself really um, moved and, and uh, sorrowful at the loss of Kobe Bryant and the way that he and his daughter and so many others died in this crash. And so I've, I've been reading Kobe Bryant quotes and you hear him on, and this is one I heard on CNN that I thought was beautiful. And he just, he says this, he says, I'm reflective only in the sense that I learned to move forward. I reflect with a purpose. I thought that's a pretty good lesson, right? Like I'm not re so reflective. Anybody's so reflective that you are caught in a tornado of your own failures, right? You just can't let go of it. I thought that's probably like, I need to look back and go, don't want to do that again. 
and then move forward. And that's what, that, in this, these stories, Peter, it's not that Peter doesn't make another mistake. Like you don't have to wait another chapter until you see Peter make another mistake, right? And our, our lives are just like that, right? But he makes a different mistake. And then along the way, what you see with Peter, and this is what I think is so beautiful, is that he's moving to become more Christ-like along the way. Now, I, I grew up in a church where they taught us like we were supposed to make this continual progress to become more Christ-like, kind of like a um, like uh, run of the base path. You'd go to first base and second base and third base, and then you'd come home and your, your spiritual journey was just gonna be really, and, and what I find is that a lot of us, like we make it to first base and then we get distracted by the hot dogs and we're out in the, you know, we're eating a hot dog, then we gotta go to the bathroom, and then we get lost, and we maybe make it over to second base, and then we're, we're, we totally get called out, and we just, it takes us forever to wind the bases, right? Well, that's a lot what Peter's life was like. He just, it wasn't just a natural, but ultimately, he was still making his way around the bases. And in all of that, Jesus is moving toward him and closer to him. So after that, they, the boat takes them to the other side, and people had gone to find Jesus there. And they, they wanted to see Jesus do more miracles. They were asking essentially like, could you do the bread thing again, Jesus? Right. And Jesus starts to explain to them, hey, that's not why I'm here. Then he begins to explain, you're looking for this bread that's not gonna last. This is what you need to know. I am the bread. Um, th- this passage I'm about to read you, I, I don't know if you, if, if you didn't believe that the Bible was put together with this beautiful Holy Spirit um, intentionality, um, it, it, to me it's like you just have missed reading it. So the part of you're gonna see in John, and we're gonna hit on these in, in some coming weeks, is that um, it builds upon, what we hear in the Gospel of John, builds upon what we learn early in the Old Testament. Now, I love the way that the New Testament and the Old Testament come together. They don't contradict each other in any way, but it builds on each other so you get a clearer picture of who God is. So in the passages we're gonna look at in in the Exodus, and Jesus is gonna bring up, um, what we find is that God has introduced himself to Moses, but it's a beginning introduction. It's, it's not as complete as what we know in Jesus. In this, it's an abstract burning bush. You remember the story from Sunday school? There's this burning bush. Anybody remember? And then Jesus says who he is, right? And who does he tell Moses he is? He says, I am, right? He says, I am. And then you're to go and you're to tell him, I am sent you, right? And then we get to the gospel of John and Jesus picks up on I am, and then he says, I am, the passage we're gonna read here, he says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am, in John, he says, I am the light of the world. He says, I'm the gate or the door that the sheep go through, right? He says, I'm your entrance, he says, I'm also your exit, like if you're never trapped because I'm the door that you'll pass through. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine that will sustain you. So he's just beginning in John chapter six, these I am statements that build on what we knew in Exodus. And this is what he tells us in John chapter six. He said, hey, the bread thing, the physical bread, it's not that important. He says, in fact, you need to know this. I am the bread that gives life. Your father's, ate manna in the wilderness. He said, they ate bread that I provided. It was miraculous in some of the same ways. 
and they died, as you know. But there's another bread that comes from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will not die. He says, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven to rescue those who eat it. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. The bread that I will give breathes life into the cosmos. This bread is my flesh. Now, if the disciples were actually listening here in John 6, that what he says in his last meal, this Passover, would not have been as big a surprise to him, right? He says, this is my body. It's one of the reasons I love coming to church, Ecclesia, every week, is whether um, I'm preaching or receiving or whatever it is that I'm doing. The, the moment I receive, I feel like the most is when the bread is broken. And one of you, brothers or sisters, says to me, this is the bread of life. This is the body that has been broken for you. That Christ's body is the bread that gives you life. And I don't know about you, but if you're here for two services, I hope you take communion twice. At, at Elder, I love it. I got four services. One of my favorite things about preaching all weekend is taking communion four times. Because I've realized in my life, I need more of Jesus and not less. Right? And every time I'm reminded, this is his body broken for me. In Exodus 16, he, he's referencing back to this passage. You remember? So the children of Israel have come out of slavery where they were stuck. They were, their life was about making bricks. And maybe like you and I, they felt like they're their value was in their performance. Anybody else feel that way? Like sometimes I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm only as good as my last sermon and my jet lag sermons generally aren't that good. And you're just, you go, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm valuable for what I produce for you or for somebody, right? And I can, I can turn myself into a brick maker if I let myself. But the Exodus was, was this reminder that, that they weren't there to make bricks. And it tells us in Exodus six, 16 that as soon as they got to the desert of Sin, right, they'd crossed through the Red Sea. They had some snacks with them. Remember this? They had kind of, they'd kind of stored up a little bit. They had, and when those were gone, it was like, well, now what do we do, right? The entire community of Israelites complained to Moses and Aaron. They said, it would have been better if we had died in the hand of the eternal in Egypt. Now, there's a part of this that I can just get onto him and be like, hey, this is ridiculous, guys. Like, he's just part of the Red Sea. He's provided for you. Why are you complaining all of a sudden? And then I think about, like, what it would be like to starve to death. And I go, yeah, I'd probably complain a little bit too. And they, and they lost perspective. They started saying, it, it, we, I'd, I'd rather be in Egypt. At least we had plenty to eat and drink. Our pots were stuffed with meat. In the passage in Numbers, they go on and talk about onions and leeks and garlic and all the food they had. He said, and we had as much bread as we wanted, but now you brought the entire community out of the desert to starve us to death. And the eternal one spoke to Moses and he said, look, I will cause bread to rain from heaven for you. And the people will go out and gather a helping of it each day. I will test them to see if they are willing to live by my instructions. You remember his instructions, right? He said, gather enough for the day. Now, this is a hard thing for all of us, right? Because um, there's not a one of us here that can go home and go, I've got just enough food for today, right? Because we have Costco and things like that, right? It's like, we got food for this, you know, the, like you can get six months supply, right? We're like, who, we got a lot. I, I, what I'd suggest to you is this is not just about food. 
I'm not saying don't go to Costco. They've got some dips and things you just can't even believe. They're so good. They're just delicious. They make some with yogurt. They're not even that fattening. They're really delicious. Can you tell I'm hungry? My schedule is totally off. This is about will you trust God with the problem you have today? I'm not telling you you can't have more money in the bank than you need for today. Like, I I hope you've got an emergency fund like Dave Ramsey says, and you can pay for something if something goes wrong, right? I'm not telling you not to have that. What, What I'm suggesting is that if you're obsessing over next week's problems, that you're gonna miss what's right in front of you. That, that really, we, we're only given enough faith for today's problems. And that if we just say, all right, God, I'm gonna walk with you today. I'm gonna do the right thing today. And then tomorrow, I'll worry about tomorrow's problems. And I'm gonna do the best to walk with you day by day. I don't know who else here in this room is trying to project out your problems two months, three months, six months, 12 months. If it feels like it's making you crazy, I just wanna suggest to you that it will make you crazy. We're made for daily bread. And so what happened when the children of Israel took more manna than they needed, right? Some of them got out there and they had a scarcity mentality. They went, we're gonna be hungry tomorrow. They got some extra. Remember what happened? They'd wake up in the morning and what, what happened with their bread? Right? It had maggots in it, right? Anybody want maggot manna? Right? Right? Nobody wants maggot manna. And what happens to us when we start obsessing over the problems of next week and tomorrow? We end up with some kind of maggot manna in our own life, right? It turns on us, it sours on us. And we miss the thing that's right in front of us, right? So if you're worried about next week's problems, you're not gonna worship today in the way that we could worship as we sing these songs because your head's turning with the next thing. And Jesus is saying, will you trust me with today? What's he saying when he says, I'm the bread of life? He says, I'm not only your provider, I'm your provision. I'm your daily provision and I'm enough. I'll walk you through it. Well, he goes on in Exodus and this is what it tells us in Exodus. The eternal one says, I'll test them to see if they're willing to live by my instructions. And on the sixth day, they will gather the usual amount. But when they go to prepare it, it will end up being twice what they usually gather, right? They're gonna, they're gonna have this supernatural doubling that happens for Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, something beautiful is gonna happen. Now, this is what I'm always astounded by uh, in the Exodus, there's a bunch of things I'm astounded by. But they were given a food that was not recognizable to them as food. Right? It was so different. What'd they call it? Manna, manna, in the Hebrew it means what? What is it? KSSO. KSSO, what is this? Or, or in, in another way it was saying, it is, anybody say this, it is what it is. I don't know what it is, but it is what it is. It's manna. And they're looking at this manna, they're like, it doesn't even look like food to us. And for some of us, whatever God is offering to us in this next season, anybody have a next season approaching? And we go, I don't even know what that, I don't know what it looks like. It's so different for me, I can't fathom it. And we become so comfortable with our past and our history, and sometimes our past and our history is actually dysfunctional but we'd rather have yesterday's dysfunction than God's future, his hope, his promise. Even though his, his promise is his promise, but because it's different, we go, what is that? I don't, God, what is that? Or we could say, 
It is what it is, right? And so I want to invite you, Ecclesia, into a new season of eating manna. We're going to prepare next week for a journey through Lent. I didn't grow up celebrating Lent. But what I learned was that there were some spiritual disciplines that could really change things for me. And we're going to be invited into a season where we say, what would it look like for God to be our sustenance? And for a few of us, myself included, to say, I'm going to lay down some of the distractions that I have that have made me so focused on being content with the dysfunction of my past that I'm not ready to step into the future for what God has. And I don't know what God's next season looks like for you, but I know his promises that he'll be with you. And I know that like the little boy with two fish, I don't know how he got those fish, if he caught them himself. I don't know if he made the bread, his mom made the bread. I don't know where it came from, but I'm pretty sure he was pretty fired up about that offering. I'm pretty sure we're gonna get to heaven and he's gonna be like, that was me. I was the one. Only one, I thought ahead. All right. And I don't know if you noticed, right? Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do. But what, what did he want? I think both from Peter and this little boy in the story. And this is what I want you to contemplate as we come to communion and then I'm gonna pray for you. I think from this little boy and from Peter, he was waiting for someone to have some skin in the game, right? Somebody was gonna take a risk and be willing to experience a loss or a failure. Little boy's like, this is all I got. I got two fish, I got five barley loaves, Jesus. He didn't notice that he didn't go, I'll eat what I need and then I'll give you the rest. Anybody have that mentality? Like, hey God, that's good, you gave me this. I'm gonna do what I need to do, then I'll give you some of the rest. This kid goes, hey, I'm all in, Jesus. What do you wanna do? I love that Peter said, you know what? I don't know how this is gonna go, and I'm pretty sure I screw up a lot, but I'm gonna step out on the water. I'm gonna take a risk. And I believe, Ecclesia, that for each of us, God has a new season. And we're gonna look at it and go, what is that? Or we're gonna look at it and say, it is what it is, God, and you're gonna walk with me, and I'm ready to journey with you. Will you give me a moment to pray for you, and then we're gonna come and share together in this bread of life. Lord God, we thank you that you are not just our provider, you are our provision. We thank you that there's not a problem that we face or will face that is going to surprise you. Lord, we thank you that you offered us examples like Peter that had moments of great faith and then moments of tremendous doubt and fear. And we acknowledge today, God, that we bring to the altar today some things that we're afraid of, some circumstances that are beyond our control. And we ask that like this little boy and like Peter, that we could experience your miraculous power, that we could learn to trust you and to walk with you and that you would offer to us what we know in this bread is the bread of life, that you have come not just to sustain us physically for the day, but spiritually for eternity. We thank you today for this cup, for this wine and juice that says to each and every one of us that our sins and failures don't define us. God, we're grateful that as Peter is, will welcome us one day 
into heaven, that Peter is not known for the moments that he failed by you. He's known as yours. His identity is in you. He belongs to you. And Lord, we're reminded today as we come to this table that we belong to you, that we are your children, your beloved sons and daughters. And we thank you, God, that that's how you see us. And we pray that we as well will learn to see ourselves and one another in the same light. May it be so as we come and we celebrate today. We pray all of this together. And we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.